0: don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best bitcoin articles well let us read them for you this is a crypto economy quick read what is up guys welcome back to the show this is the crypto economy and i'm guy swan your host the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are starting into one. This is going to be one that lasts uh, for five or six episodes, and I've been really excited to get to this one because it's another one of those just brilliant, full overviews of the entire argument. Uh, What's the nature of money? Uh, How did we get all the way to Bitcoin? What was the evolution of money over time that brought us here? And then the nature of time. And it hits a lot of you know core economic principles that need to be understood in order for Bitcoin to make sense. Um, it uh, goes over a lot of the network effects it's It's literally one of those overarching pieces, like uh, uh maybe a, a concise, more concise version of uh, SAFE's uh, the Bitcoin standard, or the bullish case for Bitcoin. So for anybody who's a little newer to the show or um it's still really you know just getting their way down uh the rabbit hole uh, i think this will be a really really great piece to cover and i'm going to try to break it up into sections and re-explain some of the main points and some of the terms that are used that uh only kind of give like a a quick cursory explanation i'll try to give some analogies i'll expand on it enough to hopefully hopefully make it available or or uh uh, more digestible for the people who are newer to the space. So uh, this is a piece by Breedlove22, I believe is the, the tag. It's um, Robert Breedlove, and it really is an amazing, all-encompassing piece. It's called Money, Bitcoin, and Time. And uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So we're going to do a marathon of like five or six episodes, and we are going to slam through this entire piece And I hope you guys enjoy it. So without uh, further ado, I don't even really have any other announcements for today. Let's go ahead and just jump right in to our read. This is Money, Bitcoin, and Time by Robert Breedlove. Abstract Money is vital lubricant of human exchange that allows it to flourish globally. Human exchange is the driving force of prosperity, which is expressed in terms of time saved. The hardness of money determines how reliable it is as a store of value across time. Money is defined in many ways and by many traits, and competition is at all times alive between different monetary goods. Historically, people have always naturally and rationally chosen the hardest form of money available to them, as hard money is resistant to value debasements and thus provides its holders peace of mind. Societies using hard money systems have always flourished until either they are exposed to a harder form of money or the hardness of their monetary system is technologically compromised. After centuries of monetary competition, The world finally settled on a hard-money gold standard in the 19th century. During this golden era, the world witnessed unprecedented levels of trade, innovation, and peace as a bank-enabled gold standard provided people a self-sovereign cash money that was beyond the control of any single government. The fatal flaw of this system was the physicality of gold which led to its centralization within bank vaults. Driven by greed, banks began printing more banknotes than their gold reserves could justify, thus compromising the hardness of the gold standard. Drawn by the practically limitless power provided by the fiat money printing press, governments and newly created entities called central banks began taking over the banking sector. Soon, they began confiscating gold from citizens and forcing them to use valueless money called fiat currency. Virtually all fiat currencies throughout history have had their values completely destroyed by inflation. Further, inflation is the prime driver of all economic inequality in the world, as those privileged few who receive newly printed money the earliest benefit disproportionately. Central banks are the last bastion of socialism in the free world, as their express aim is to centrally plan and manipulate the market for money. Central bank actions are the primary cause of market distortions, aka bubbles, economic recessions, and the boom-and-bust business cycle. In the past century dominated by central banking, the world has witnessed unprecedented levels of death in warfare, economic crisis, and an ever-growing wealth disparity. Bitcoin was released in 2009 as an open-source software project in the wake of the Great Recession. Bitcoin is digital cash money, meaning that it is a self-sovereign asset that is beyond the control of any single government, similar to gold. By virtue of being digital, Bitcoin is resistant to centralization, can be transmitted at the speed of light, and stored in computer or human memory. Similar to the internet, Bitcoin is decentralized, which makes it immune to confiscation, counterfeit, inflation, and censorship. The hardness of Bitcoin increases relentlessly and will eventually reach infinity as its supply is absolutely scarce. Its hardness is secured by its immutable rules, which are protected by the energy expenditure necessary to maintain its network. The Bitcoin network is the most powerful, valuable, and secure computing network in the history of the world. In the face of adversity, it adapts, improves, and grows. Bitcoin propagates its network by economically incentivizing everyone who interacts with it. Further, these network participants create multi-sided network effects which fortify Bitcoin's market-dominant position and insulate it from competitive disruption. History shows us that every time hard money encounters a softer form of money, it ultimately outcompetes it into extinction. In the digital age, monetary networks are more connected than ever before. There is no way to protect yourself from something else holding a form of money that is harder than yours. Ignore Bitcoin at your own peril. Time is the only true scarcity we deal with as human beings. Conceptually, Money is frozen time that is tradable for the time of others. Therefore, the finite supply of Bitcoin makes it perfect for freezing and transacting finite time. Diffusion of and trust in innovative technologies like Bitcoin grow over time and benefit early adopters the most. As a purely informational innovation, Bitcoin is protected under freedom of speech laws. Looking towards the future, game theory shows us that global Bitcoin adoption is virtually inevitable. As it begins demonetizing government fiat money economies, it is only a matter of time before central banks suffer competitive disruption from Bitcoin. Of course, the future is uncertain, and the end could always be near. So, only time will tell how this all plays out. Part 1 Money The Simple Truth About Money Money is the most successful story ever told by humans. It is a reflexive narrative, meaning that it has value only because everyone believes it, and everyone believes it because it has value. Money is a story that continues to be written. Human Exchange Human beings are a networked species. Initially, these were small bands of hunters and gatherers, numbering no more than 150 persons strong, or Dunbar's number. When humans began to exchange with one another, they intuitively discovered the division of labor which allows people to focus on their relative advantages and concentrate on their chosen craft. The division of labor enables the specialization of productive efforts for mutual gain. If John makes axes faster than Steve, and Steve makes bows faster than John, then they both are better off by specializing and trading. And interestingly, this holds true even if John is faster than Steve at making axes and bows up to a point. And amazingly, this effect compounds. Tools or technologies are mechanisms that increase productivity by amplifying the returns on human time directed at production. You can chop more wood per man hour using an axe, than you can with your bare hands. As people made and exchanged more tools, time savings increased and specialization deepened. Specialization sparked innovation because it encouraged the investment of time in tool-making tools, such as whetstones used for making sharper axes. This enabled people to create superior tools, which increased productivity even further. That saved more time, which people used to specialize even further and expand their scope of trade by exchanging with an even greater number and variety of people, which increased the division of labor even further, and so on. This recursive dynamic persists to this day as a virtuous cycle with no known natural limit. Modern markets and goods, services, and ideas allow human beings to exchange and specialize honestly for the betterment of all. In this way, the act of exchange is the incipient force driving all human progress and prosperity. Prosperity is simply time saved, which is proportional to the division of labor. Human exchange is to cultural evolution what sex is to biological evolution. By exchanging and specializing, innovations come into existence and spread. At some point, human intelligence became collective and cumulative in a way that happened to no other animal. Language and later writing allowed us to pass our collective learnings to each successive generation, Written language allowed us to manifest and share our belief systems. As the only animal that can tell and believe stories, we learned to organize ourselves using abstractions, such as money, mathematics, nations, and corporations. Our unique ability to tell and believe stories, as free market capitalists, human rights activists, national citizens, or whatever story we accord with, enables us to cooperate flexibly in large numbers and across genetic boundaries. This scale of collaboration, never attained by any other animal before or since, is the reason mankind came to dominate the earth. We are the networked species, fully interconnected by our acts of exchange. A spontaneous, emergent property of these complex human interactions is money, which solved problems inherent to trade and accelerated the rate of human exchange and the division of labor. Money as the vital lubricant for human exchange was among the first stories we used to collectively organize ourselves. The Story of Money Let's begin with first principles and follow logic from there. The simplest way for people to exchange value is to trade actual goods, say, guns for boats, in a process known as direct exchange or barter. This is only practical in small groups of people where few goods are exchanged. In larger groups of people, there are more opportunities for individuals to specialize in production and trade with more people, which increases the aggregate wealth for everyone. This simple fact that exchange enables us to produce more goods per hour of human effort is the foundation of economics itself. Economics is the social science of increasing production per unit of contribution. Larger groups of people exchanging goods mean larger markets, but also creates a problem of non-coincidence of wants. When you are seeking to acquire by trade, is produced by someone who doesn't want what you have to offer. This problem has three distinct dimensions. Non-coincidence in scales. Imagine trying to trade pencils for a house. You cannot acquire fractions of a house and the owner of the house may not need such a large amount of pencils. Non-coincidence of locations. Imagine trying to trade a coal mine in one place for a factory in another location. Unless by coincidence you are seeking a factory in that exact location and the counterparty you are dealing with is seeking a coal mine in that precise place, the deal will not be completed since factories and coal mines are not movable. Non-coincidence in time frames. Imagine trying to accumulate enough oranges to trade for a truck. Since the oranges are perishable, they would likely rot before the deal could ever be completed. The only way to resolve this three-dimensional problem is through indirect exchange where you seek to find another person with a good desired by the counterparty and exchange your good for theirs, only to in turn exchange it for the counterparty's good to complete the deal. The intermediary good used to complete the deal with the counterparty is called a medium of exchange, the first function of money. Over time, people gradually converge on a single medium of exchange, or at most a few media of exchange. A good that assumes the role of a widely accepted medium of exchange is commonly called money. Money offers its users pure optionality as it can be readily exchanged for any good available in the marketplace. In other words, money is the most liquid asset within a trade network. In this sense, money is said to have the highest salability, meaning the ease with which it can be sold on the market at any time with the least loss in price. The relative salability of goods can be assessed in terms of how well they address the three dimensions of the non-coincidence of wants problem. Saleability across scales, a good that is easily subdivided into smaller units or grouped together in larger units, which allows the user to trade it in whatever quantity desired. Saleability across space, a good that is easily transported or transmitted over distances. And saleability across time, a good that can reliably hold its value into the future by being resistant to rot, corrosion, counterfeit, unpredictable increases in supply, and other debasements of value. It is the third element, saleability across time, that determines a good's utility as a store of value, the second function of money. Since the production of each new unit of a monetary good makes every other unit relatively less scarce, it dilutes the value of the existing units in a process known as inflation. Protecting value from confiscation via inflation is a critical feature of money, and money is critical to the existence of flourishing trade networks. Hard money Hard money is more trustworthy as a store of value precisely because it resists intentional debasements of its value by others and therefore maintains salability across time. The hardness of a monetary good, also known as its soundness, is determined by the stock of its existing supply and the flow of its new supply. The ratio which quantifies the hardness of money is called the stock-to-flow ratio. Stock is the existing supply of monetary units. Flow is the newly created supply over a specified time period, usually one year. Dividing the stock of a monetary good by its flow equals its stock-to-flow ratio. The higher the stock-to-flow ratio, the greater the hardness or soundness of the money. The higher the stock-to-flow ratio, the more resistant the money is to having its value compromised by inflation. There are no correct choices as to forms of money. However, there are consequences to what form a market naturally selects. If people choose to store their wealth in a monetary good which exhibits less hardness, then the producers of this monetary good are incentivized to produce more monetary units, which expropriates the wealth of existing unit holders and destroys the monetary goods' salability across time. This is the fatal flaw of soft money. Anything used as a store of value that can have its supply increased will have its supply increased as producers seek to steal the value stored within the soft monetary units and store it in a harder form of money. As many historical examples in this essay will demonstrate, any monetary good which can have its supply cheaply and easily increased will rapidly destroy the wealth of those using it as a store of value. For a good to assume a dominant monetary role within an economy, it must exhibit superior hardness with a higher stock-to-flow ratio than competing monetary goods. Otherwise, excessive unit production will destroy the wealth of savers and the incentives to use it as a store of value. Particular goods achieve monetary roles based on the interplay of people's decisions. It is from the chaos of complex human interactions that monetary orders emerge. Therefore, it's important to consider the social aspects of the spontaneous emergence of monetary orders. Money is a social network. All right, let's stop right here for now, and uh, I want to kind of go over this section Um, and uh, first let's actually hit our sponsor. I'm going to go grab something to drink and then we'll go through and I'll explain uh, a little bit differently what we just covered. What's funny is the first thing I actually want to talk about here is actually something that I take a little bit of an issue with because this is something that's very common but I think gets wrongly applied to money uh, in a different way than it gets applied to other goods Because even though there is a degree of speciality, I guess you could say, in monetary goods, it is it gets led to, people are led to believe that it's more of like a religious thing, and I really don't think that's the case. So I want to start with just the quote that we open with, because this, I actually take, I, I think this is almost more obscuring some of the reality of money than it actually is Uh, enlightening or revealing but let let me go ahead and hit the quote and I'll tell you what I mean so money is the most successful story ever told by humans it is a reflexive narrative meaning it only has value because everyone believes it and everyone believes it because it has value money is a story that continues to be written now I actually like this quote but i I really don't think I think it kind of le- leads to a misconception um and it, it's my uh I, like I have people it really bothers me the misconception that money is entirely subjective um and be- because value itself is subjective I think it leads people to believe that money is only money because everybody agrees it's money and there is a degree of truth to that but it indicates or it it makes it seem like there are no real characteristics that there's no base in reality that it's just a big dream and as long as everybody's dreaming it then oh well we can just use glass beads as money and the simple truth is that's not true um it it actually has to it has to be based in something real in the world that is definable like like everything, all value is a story that humans tell themselves. The, the amazing thing about money is that it's a story that everyone tells themselves. It's a joint story. So it is fascinating, and I still do love what the quote does reveal, but I think it, it, it obscures something to someone who hasn't already studied money for a very long time. I think it uh, suggests a truth that's actually not there so real quick, let me let me explain what I mean the difference between subjective and objective. Like I know this is probably very common knowledge, but just in case, um and so I can get my point across is that like subjective does not mean that it's meaningless or arbitrary. Subjective means that we will not all come to the exact same conclusion about its value. Uh so like subjective Like you might very deeply, subjectively value an image of you and your spouse on a vacation somewhere that was really meaningful to you, something that happened. But it's not that's not an arbitrary thing. It is specifically because of the memory that it's tied to, because it's you and your spouse. Like you could have a picture of two completely different people in that same location, and it's meaning. You're like, I don't, I don't want that. Like it's a real thing. You can't fake. That value, even though it's subjective, I wouldn't value that picture any more than I would value, uh, well, unless I know you. Um, but I wouldn't value it any more, um, than you know, just a picture of some uh, person I don't recognize that already comes in the frame. But even if I did know you and value the picture, I would never value it as much as a picture of me and my wife that had meaning to me. Again, it's all subjective. Um, it's based on our experiences and our uh. Uh, perception and individual choices like I like uh, you know a certain genre of movie and somebody else likes a different genre of movie those are subjective values and literally everything has subjective value and everything is based on the story that we tell with it if uh, the invention or, or the discovery of oil as an energy source the story that we tell about how to utilize oil and then you know, refine it, uh, uh, get gasoline out of it, and then put it into an engine and how to run the gears and the pistons that turn that, that fire into ground power, into a machine that can move at great distances and great speeds for incredibly small amounts of this fuel. Without that story, it's worthless. What good does oil do me? I need the story. Everything is valued based on a... A human story that we tell with it on how to apply it now when we talk about something that's objective it's something that no matter who is thinking about it as long as we go through this the the correct thought process there are objective truths that we can figure out and there are ways to deduce down to the exact same answer no matter where in history It's discovered no matter what culture discovers it. Math. Math is a perfect example of objective truth. If I have two apples, and then I have two apples over here, I put them together, I have four. There's nobody that going through that process will end up with five apples, and it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter what symbol you use for uh, representing two and representing four of a thing, two plus two equals four, that's it and uh another another objective truth is something like uh one of the core objective truths is um like i think therefore i am i can objectively define or objectively prove that i exist and you can objectively prove that you exist i can't prove that you exist and you can't really prove that i exist because you know this could all be a simulation or you know whatever like i, I could just be being fed uh, sensory information that's all fake. Um, But if I am thinking about whether or not I exist, the very fact that I am experiencing something, regardless of how much I could trust or what underlying reality is actually there, the fact that I am experiencing something is proof that I exist. It's enough to say there is something here because I just asked a question. That means I exist. That's objective. We can all individually come to that same conclusion. So this is a really long roundabout way to get to my point that uh, money's value is a story that we all tell ourselves, but it is not arbitrary. Um, In fact, you could argue that because it's a culmination of so many millions or billions of people's subjective values in one, that it's an uh, arguably more objective measurement than anything else out there um because it's not a single individual it's it's a collective that ends up producing the end result of the price system but what what empowers that is this thing uh, that we uh, kind of talk about towards the beginning of this section uh, is the division of labor of specialization within the economy that at some point um, like human exchange is what creates economic progress. The only ty- the only thing that makes an economy an economy is the fact that it is a collective. Uh, it is a it is a collective effort to produce a better situation for everyone all at once, and it is the further specialization of uh, tasks uh, within an economy. That makes it more and more, makes progress greater and greater, efficiency greater and greater, and allows us to benefit from a collective, a, commu- a cumulative knowledge of human society. Um, uh, I-, I love the quote that uh, uh, it was human exchange is to cultural evolution what sex is to biological evolution. It's the constant uh, uh, marrying of multiple ideas and the ability to benefit from uh, thousands and millions of other people's uh, inventions and ingenuity and knowledge sets and skills, all of these things. Like money is an absolute breakthrough. It's it's sort of a, it behaves like so many things at once because it's such a standardized good. Um, and, again, these, this is not arbitrary. It must have a certain set of characteristics that we'll actually get into a little later in this piece, um, and I'll expand on when we get to that point. But, that uh, again, this is not arbitrary. Money has to have certain characteristics in order to fulfill this role, but it's sort of a combination of a language because it's this standard means of communicating, except it's a language of value as opposed to a language of information it's also a standard measurement because um one of its one of the things that makes it a good uh language of value is the fact that we can uh what's the word uh, it's like ordinal like we can have uh relationships between two things of value and know which one is more and which one is less we have this price system of how many of this good um money in our case obviously um uh relates to Uh, this other good, whereas we don't have to, because we have this standard good, because we have this one that everyone can relate to, we don't have to try to figure out how many pencils a house is worth, which just on its face seems like an absolutely idiotic and insurmountable task. Money is the most critical piece of that exchange and interaction. It is the it is the piece of the economy, it is one of those one of those goods in the economy that that is absolutely necessary to cross something like Dunbar's number. He talks about uh Dunbar's number, which uh if you don't know it's the um it's roughly one hundred and fifty, but it's the number that uh Dunbar came up with that's it's roughly the amount of people and relationships that the human mind can deal with so that we can uh we can trust and uh organize ourselves without feeling disconnected from any particular person like i can i can roughly know my relationship with everybody in the tribe or the town or this specific uh district of my business or something like that because i know i can hold that many relationships in my head but it's exponential like you also have to remember like relationships between each other it's not just my relationship with all of these people it's also uh my relationship with sandy and my relationship with bob and also i have to remember and know about sandy's relationship with bob and vice versa so uh dunbar's number really sets like a a upper limit on the ability to organize society without some sort of medium that bridges between me and some person I know nothing about. I have no idea whether I can trust them. I need some sort of organization that maybe we can jointly trust, like a bank or uh, a, a friend of a friend, uh, uh, an escrow agent that maybe, like, like that's what all of these services and things come about for is because we have to have some sort of intermediary um, and language is that intermediary. It's so that we can still communicate ideas and roughly be explaining and uh, having the same ideas or telling ourselves the same story in our minds of, again, of people we don't know. Language is an intermediary. I can lean on the fact that I can explain in words to you a concept and you will probably create the exact same concept in your head if I do a decent job of it at least. And of course, as long as your understanding of the words that I am using is roughly the same in your head, but it could be completely different. Like you could think that uh, if I tried to explain something about a cow and you thought a cow was a camel, or vice versa, I thought a cow had humps on its back and lived in the desert, then our communication would break down. But it's because we have the same standards, because we have the same information and the same stories in our heads as to. Uh, what all these things mean, that language is a great intermediary between me and someone I know nothing about and who I probably can't trust because, or I shouldn't trust because I don't know about their reputation, I don't have their history, uh, but I might be able to work out some details and make an exchange for a very short period of time in person with them where I don't have to trust and we can still communicate information properly or we can communicate... A product that solves a problem that someone can communicate to me relatively well, or relatively uh, uh, securely, I guess you could say. So language does that for communication, and money does that for value. So if you're if you're trying to think of what an economy would look like uh, without money, then I think probably the best way to imagine it is uh, try to imagine uh, having a conversation with someone without language. Like All you can do is grunt and body language and point. Like That's basically what we would end up with, and the internet would break down pretty damn quick. Uh, I mean, imagine, like, literally stop and take a couple of minutes and try to imagine organizing society without language. Try to talk to your spouse, somebody you know very deeply without language. It's I mean, it's a daunting task. And I think money actually is a has a deeper effect on those sorts of things because well, you see it when in like socialist countries or something where money breaks down, where they continue to violate and corrupt the money um for political ends, uh eventually the money itself breaks down and the economy completely collapses. I mean, think about it, when those and those things are happening. It's not a problem of like we don't have machines anymore to make shirts. We don't have uh, uh, ovens anymore to make food. Like uh, the that's not what happened in Venezuela. They didn't run out of stuff. They didn't run out of oil. What happened is the money stopped acting as a uh, secure medium for exchanging value. They had no good with which to weigh everything against. Um, no standardized good that worked. Again, because those characteristics are not arbitrary, even though they're all still using it, quote-unquote, as money, those, the characteristics are not arbitrary. Its value has been completely destroyed because it's a soft money, because um, it was corrupted by the political institution, and so now nobody can exchange. Uh, shelves are empty. People are starving to death. I mean, it's awful. All because of a miscommunication of value. Resources cannot get to where they uh, need to go. No one can do an exchange and hold the value for any period of time. Uh, it, it, everything just falls apart. Economic organization, which is the only thing that keeps us from starving to death because otherwise, economic organization is the reason none of us grow our own food. I can pretty much guarantee that the majority of everybody's food that listens to this is not grown by themselves. Maybe you grow your own tomatoes and some spices or stuff, uh, or you raise chickens, whatever. We're Bitcoiners, so you know some of us do that. But it's a safe assumption that the vast majority of you, almost 100% of you, get most of your food from the economy. If we cannot exchange value, it essentially means that none of us can get food unless we're growing it ourselves. All right, now my favorite section and one of the most fascinating concepts about money, about like what problems it solves, are the coincidence, the non-coincidence of wants problem. Um, so the non-coincidence in scales. It's the the three distinct dimensions, and it's fascinating because money is that thing that is. Uh, must have the set of characteristics that make it perfect for exactly for solving these exact three uh, problems. Okay, so let's go over them. We've got the non-coincidence in scales. That's the uh, pencils trade pencils for a house example, which is a, just a great example, straight to the point. How do you how could you possibly compare uh, the value of pencils to a house? Um, and like, how would you trade pencils for a house? Uh, why would the owner need a billion pencils or whatever it is to "quote unquote" roughly equal the value of a house? Um, I mean, obviously, if all you had was pencils to trade, uh, it would you would never have a house, and nobody would ever build a house just to get a whole bunch of pencils. Then we've got the non coincidence of locations, uh, and that's just you know, so let's say I want to exchange my house for a. Uh, I don't know, one really expensive couch. Maybe the couch is made out of gold. Okay, so it's worth roughly what my house is. Well, you, if I'm trying to exchange it with somebody in California, they don't need a house uh, on the East Coast. They need they need a house in California. So my house does me no good, even if it's worth roughly the amount of that gold couch, which would also be really expensive to try to move um, <laughs> back to my location. And then I no longer have a house to put it in. But uh then we've got the non coincidence in time frames, and uh that's a the great example uh he gave was the trying to get enough oranges to buy for buy a truck is the oranges would just pair it uh it would rot they would rot before you would ever have enough um to actually accumulate the value of a truck um and that's one of those that's one of those key things that money serves money is by, by, by definition, one of the most critical pieces of characteristics of what makes a money money is that it does not degrade over time. Gold does not tarnish. Um, it does not degrade over time. And obviously, neither does Bitcoin. It's digital information. As long as you have the information, it's the same information. You know, It could be 100 years from now. It's right today. But almost any other good you think about um aside from a handful of other characteristics that money has that again most other goods do not just if you think about it in the idea of it perishing or rotting or breaking down over time uh, or being obsolete like uh, that you know it degrades just in the amount of utility it can give money doesn't need to money provides a very particular utility that is hard to innovate in um because it's such a critical set of uh, characteristics but you know if i if i bought a phone it's going to be a whole, worth a whole lot less even if it's in pristine condition in a couple of years because the technology of phones changes drastically over time same for a car or a, a, a computer a tv a, a piece of furniture like it almost doesn't matter like anything that i buy is likely to eventually rot or break down or wear out um, but money is that thing that it doesn't matter how long you've been using gold. you can always just melt it down and it's the same gold it always was before. That's what made it such a brilliant money back in the days of physical money, where we our exchanges weren't happening in a digital cyberspace. our exchanges were happening in person, all of them were. but that is increasingly no longer true. So uh, the only way to solve uh these three problems transmitting value from today to six weeks from now rather than immediately bartering with, uh, you know the exact same scale of good in the exact same location at the exact same time. I want to I, I, sh- I would have to consume or be ready to consume every single good that I wanted to exchange with and have exactly the good that the other person in the exact same scale and all of those things uh just to make an exchange so the only way to solve this problem is indirectly to have a good that both of us can be like well i we both uh, totally agree to have this one good so how about we just hold that one that has the characteristics that allow it to be exactly the same good in six weeks that it is right now that uh I can that it's the exact same uh relative value um like for any one unit of it that ten units is exactly ten of the one that uh uh like like you know ten chickens are not all the same chicken, you might have a skinny chicken, you might have a fat chicken, you might have a healthy or a sickly chicken like chickens are not um fungible is the word, and then obviously across location that it can be carried easily transported. And I don't have to have a house that's in California to sell uh, to somebody in order to exchange that much value, or I don't have to have a golden couch. I can just have the money that's the equivalent of all of that, which is easy or at least much easier to move from place to place. Now, when we get a little bit further down in this section, I'm really glad that, uh, Breedlove really focused on the store of value, on the saleability across time, because that is one of the things that is so difficult to find and that money serves such a unique purpose of, um, because nothing else can do it as perfectly as a sound money can. But that leads us to the difference between a hard money or a sound money and a soft money or unsound money is that one that is an independent measuring stick, so to speak. That um, it's just like you want the definitions of words in a language to be consistent across time. You want the number of units of money available to not be uh, not be able to be manipulated. Because if if there is a soft money, and we are all using it as an independent good. Well then you have the ability to print that money to make that money from nothing while everyone else has to earn it. Everyone else has to exchange it and it's incredibly scarce for them. Therefore they have to give up all of their time into producing value for someone else in order to get the valuable good that they want money um in its place because it gives them that um that uh, uh complete optionality to purchase any other good in the economy whereas you know everything else like i can't i can't take a guitar and just buy anything i want i need money to get all of that optionality a guitar is very limited to the people who want a guitar so the person who doesn't have to take the time who doesn't have to produce any value in order to do that has the greatest power in mo- in the modern world that exists anywhere they have the full option of purchasing any amount of any good and, and commanding the labor and the time of any person in the entire economy that accepts that monetary good without doing anything in exchange. It is the power to command practically limitless resources for no cost whatsoever. Obviously, there is a limit because you destroy the value of the good, so... It's this constant interplay between how much can I get away with before people notice that I'm stealing all of the resources in the economy. But that's effectively what it is. Everyone else is earning money, everyone else is earning value, and everyone else is producing value. And then there is one institution which prints money and does nothing but consume. All it can do is consume because it's not participating in economic exchange. It's participating in the manipulation of money to extract value. And now we could all just like pass it off and be like, "Oh, well, we'll just get really, really good people to manage our soft money. Well, that's just that's just ignoring human like human nature that anything that we we will always use the path of least resistance and you know power corrupts. absolute power corrupts absolutely. we This is a basic truism. We know this about humans. If you put them in incentives that will reward bad corrupt behavior, they will become bad, corrupt people. It's really just an inevitability, and the tiny, teeny, tiny, itty-bitty fraction of people who may be able to make independent, good choices in spite of that are irrelevant because they're mostly cartoon characters that are made up. Everyone is flawed. Even if you have good intentions, that doesn't mean that you only produce good results or that you only do good things. All you have to do is believe something incorrectly, which we all do. That is 100% inevitable. And you could have a terrible, terrible thing happen no matter how good your intentions are. So a sound money is one where its, uh, its scarcity is completely independent of any other single institution. Gold is a great example. There is nobody that can just create gold out of thin air. That's what made. That's what led to the Industrial Revolution and the explosion of wealth and the birth of the modern economy that happened throughout the mid-to-late 1800s um, until the fiat era, which we are now in, where uh, money is by decree and there are certain elites who hold the power to command all of our resources simply because they're really close to the printing press. So in my opinion, the real... The fundamental difference between a hard money and a soft money is the difference between a completely level playing field where everyone has to actually use mutual exchange to achieve monetary goods that you can only um, get it through real value or real cost, real value production or actual human cost in order to obtain that value as opposed to soft money where it can easily be corrupted and manipulated, and value can be extracted dishonestly. So the difference between a hard money and a soft money is whether or not it's an honest ledger of human exchange or one where it's a dishonest ledger of human exchange. But before we close this out, the one idea that I really just want to get across that's so critical that I think is such a widely held misconception is that people don't realize money is a tool. Money isn't, because it's 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 one of those things like a fish doesn't know it's wet. Because it's everywhere, it just becomes this default thing. And then, you know, people end up believing or repeating this, like money is the root of all evil or something just because um, they see people do terrible, because people are greedy. And you forget that money is a tool, and it's a tool that actually allows us to cooperate. And even though we have no way of, uh, like without money, to assign any kind of reasonable or explainable price that could get one that everyone can relate to with their completely separate actions, their ideas of the world, the narratives of who is good and who is bad, like all the differences that we have, the different communications, like the, the different languages that we use, How could we possibly compare the scarcity and the value of all of our different skill sets, the different machinery, uh, uh, the different means of organization, all the costs, the resources involved, the millions and millions of elements that determine just the cost of a pencil and trying to compare that to the cost of a car. Think about what a miracle it is that we have a good that fulfills a a role as a tool to bridge those two completely different, mind-blowingly unrelated goods, that we have a system that spontaneously emerges. Nobody dictated this. Nobody laid out a design for this. It simply came about through the interaction of millions of people over extended periods of of time. Uh, iPencil is a really, really great piece that if you have not read it or heard it, uh you really need to you really need to cover that one. That one's absolutely critical. It's uh, Leonard Reed. I don't know which episode it is, but I'll uh, try to remember to put it in the show notes. Um, but try to imagine just the vast complexity and really endless string of connected exchanges that a single price accounts for. I mean, like the the let's take the price of a pencil. Since we're on it, is that it seems incredibly disconnected from the cost of a diaper that a mother would need for her child. But that that mother may work at the restaurant that feeds the workers who work in the factory, that produces the pencils, which she will decide whether to buy or not based on the relative cost of having a pencil or using alternatives like a pen, a quill, or a smartphone, and those relative costs that she has for uh, buying her, her child diapers. If, if your mind is not blown by trying to imagine the fact that there is a good that can connect all of that together, then your schooling has done you a monumental disservice. By being that intermediary good, it is, uh, it is essentially so liquid in the economy, it is so available as a good from every participant that it connects the markets of every other good, uh, every other means of organization, everything in society is actually connected and can work together on the same relative understanding of what value is. And it just emerges from this collective standard and my life becomes vastly better because I can trade for a computer, I really don't know how to make. Like, I tell people, like, oh, I made my computer because I bought, like, six pieces and stuck it together with a couple of screws. I didn't build the computer. I don't know anything about making a chip or even the machine that makes the chips for me. I don't know how... I don't know the first thing about my microphone, about how it really works. I, I don't know how to get any of the metal materials. Uh, I couldn't possibly figure out how to... Like, trying to design a screw... Of, of actually just making a screw to put any of this stuff together, uh, how would I do that? How would I go about doing that if I could not exchange for someone else's already having solved that problem for me, a tool that just does it? So the, it, it literally, I mean, think about it, it took thousands and thousands of years for all of the inventions to reach this point. It would genuinely take thousands and thousands of years of millions and millions of people to even do just what I have sitting in front of me right now today, this setup would take millions of lifetimes to find the aluminum, to discover aluminum, to find and actually figure out how to mine it, to figure out how to transport it all the way around the world to get it here, to figure out the machine. All, I mean, it, it's endless. I could go on for six hours just pulling shit out of my ass that I would have to know to figure out this setup. But what did it take me? It took me a matter of a couple of days worth of work to just exchange my value. And my only thing that I know how to do is just talk into a microphone. That's the one thing that allows me to exchange the value that is extreme specialization and division of labor in the economy that is 100% not even close to possible without the tool of money at our disposal. Money is not the root of all evil. It is the veritable foundation of society. And I I, I cannot stress that point enough. So that is where I will leave us for today. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed my rant here at the end of our uh, first episode of Money, Bitcoin, and Time by Robert Breedlove. Uh, I will be tagging him in the post as we uh, go through this whole series, this whole piece. Uh, and it's going to be, we got so much more fun stuff to cover here. Um, and we will be breaking into Money is a Social Network tomorrow. Don't forget to follow BreedLove22 on uh, Twitter. Don't forget to follow me at The Crypto Economy and subscribe to the show so you don't miss all the rest of this amazing piece. And I will catch you all back here tomorrow. This is The Crypto Economy with Guy Swan. And until next time, take it easy, guys.